This is a Vault Studios production. This podcast contains graphic subject matter and is meant for mature listeners only. If we abandon civility, if, if we just allow, uh, you know, this kind of madness to go on, then what are we doing here to, to begin with? You know, what, what's the point to all of it? I'm Shay McAllister. This is Bardstown. The FBI and its law enforcement partners are seeking information about the murder of police officer Jason Ellis. Chief Division Counsel of the Louisville, Kentucky FBI, Mary Trotman. The FBI has just recently approved up to $50,000 for information leading to the identification, arrest, and convictions of those responsible. When a police officer is specifically targeted, that is a higher danger to the public. Someone has information, and that information could help catch the killer of a fine police officer, husband, and father. Someone was laying in wait for Jason Ellis to come around the exit 34 ramp off Bluegrass Parkway on May 25, 2013. The culprit had deliberately placed tree limbs across the roadway, and when the officer got out to clear the debris, he was shot and killed. I think uh, it, it demonstrates that they had considered a contingency as well, because there were more than one shooter and there were um, multiple rounds that were fired. So it was expressive and it was intentional. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a crossfire. It was uh, definitely a targeted assassination. They put great foresight into this. They also, they cut Jason off from any type of defense. He's helpless. These guys, then all they had to do was take the coward's approach, which is from the rear, and um, that's the way they set this up. They funneled him into a kill zone and ambushed him before he had a chance to draw his weapon. Are you better off in life now because you killed this officer? Or your situation better off because you killed this officer? Because you put an entire family, an entire police department, and an entire community upside down because of your selfishness? To his widow and their two sons, he was more than just a Bardstown police officer. He was their everything. I think about him all the time. And one of the hardest things is, you know, I, I still, the, the grieving process is, it's not, there's not a manual for it. There's not a timeline for it. Everybody's different and, and it hits you in waves and it comes and it goes. And, you know, I really feel for, like my boys and things that they have to miss out on. Former Bardstown Police Chief Rick McCubbin, who's now the police chief for Shepherdsville, Kentucky, meets up with us at the Blind Pig Speakeasy in Bardstown, his favorite place to grab a glass of bourbon on the rocks. I think about it every day. There's not been a day in the six years that goes by I don't think about it. Somehow, something. You know, live here still. I go by the ramp. And my son's a cop now. Uh, he's a deputy with the sheriff's office. I mean, of course I think about it every day, you know. And he sits with us casually, out of uniform, wearing a polo shirt and khaki shorts. The dimly lit speakeasy is adorned with chandelier sconces, blue velvet couches, and a black pot belly stove. Oh, Jason was a, um, he was a chief's cop. <laughs> he was a great guy. I uh, had the pleasure to be his chief for, what, two years? just two years before he was murdered. 
you know, the, the, the guy that always had the smile, the bubbly guy, the, you know, the typical stuff you hear about. Seems like those are the ones that always happens to, but that was, that was truly him. You know, he was uh, um, a, a good cop, very active cop. He, was, he had a passion with, with Figo, his dog, and taking drugs off the street. Always talked about his boys, Hunter and Parker. They were the center of his life. Amy, you know, nothing, there was no ever any bad thoughts one way or the other. He was just one of those guys that you just, you had fun when you were around. And he was fun to be around. And on a lighter side, he, he was kind of a jokester, wasn't he? Yeah. And I think I spoke about this during his eulogy. Um, the city of Bardstown would have an annual Christmas party for all the employees. And he started the, uh, he and another officer, Andrew, started the ugly sweater contest, lack of better words. But they decided instead of dressing up like you're supposed to do at a big Christmas dinner party, they decided to try to come in the ugliest sweater you could find. And then it finally built up to, the, to one year he dressed completely like an elf, you know, walked in the door like he was wearing a tux. That's just you know, kind of the guy that he was. You, you gave his eulogy at his funeral. What was that like for you? Oh, it was, it was uh, you know, uh, personally, it was uh, probably the hard, one of the hardest speeches I had ever given. But I just tried to speak from the heart to tell what I knew of him as a chief. There was always a joke there, something in the police trainings in Gatlinburg that he went to. You know, I didn't hear about it till after, you know, he had died. Then I hear about all these things that only a chief would hear about, you know, I guess after statute of limitations run out, so. Like what? Dressing up in the skin-tight suit, walking through the stores in Gatlinburg. Um, you know, some of the crazy things he did uh, at the baseball games. Uh, I did attend um, one of his cookouts, because the chief never gets invited to the party. He was always the first one to have the party and the last one to, to leave. He was, he was just, you know, that kind of guy. One of his other officers at that time, Nick Houck, wasn't the joking type. Jessica asked McCubbin to clear up a rumor she's heard in town, that there was discord between Ellis and Houck. If there was any, were any, I didn't know it. I, I truly didn't. They were on the same shift, but in the two years before Jason died, I had never heard there, there was. No one ever spoke of it, if there was. Uh, Nick was a very quiet, standoffish type person. That was just his personality. So to see Nick sitting off in the corner at squad room or roll call wouldn't be unusual. Uh, he just wasn't that person that was going to he would engage only when you spoke to him. He was not that guy that was gonna gonna talk. I don't know. And, and after it happened, people people said, "Well, you know, could they disliked each other?" And I said, I, "I don't know." They cut up. Jason cut up with Nick all the time. Joked with him. Um, I remember, you know, Nick was particular with his hair. You know, Jason would mess with him about his hair. You know, Nick, don't touch my hair kind of, you know. So, but nothing that was no more than a bunch of cops in a squad room would do anywhere in America that, I, you know, I, I saw any issue there. Nick Houck and Jason Ellis were rookies together, brought onto the force around the same time. Nick's also the brother to a man whose girlfriend goes missing two years later. And I know kind of where you're going with it because it's been up and obviously... If there was an issue, was it one that would, you'd do that? You'd set up and snipe and kill a fellow officer just because that, that's the problem I have. And again, being in this profession as long as I have, 
I've, I've seen cops that didn't get along, but my gosh, we don't eat our own, <laughs> you know? We do our thing and we don't go out after work and drink beer. That's about the worst. If two cops don't get along, that's about the worst thing I've ever seen is, you know, you're not invited to my cookout, I don't like you. I've, I've never seen where a cop's killed another cop just because I simply didn't like you. <clears throat> so I can't imagine that being the case here. On May 30th, 2013, thousands came out for Jason's funeral. Thousands of his fellow brothers in blue from across the country came out in droves to honor him. The community lined the streets and the Bluegrass Parkway with American flags and signs showing their love for their fallen officer. the worst day of my life. I mean, it completely destroyed. It was, it was awful. It was, I would never wish that upon anybody. Um, you know, we lost uh, my husband, my person, my everything, and my boys lost their daddy. Uh, mother lost her son. Sisters lost their brother. You know, my family was just as close to him. His friends the other officers, and you know, we lost our future, our hopes, our dreams, just it shattered us. We miss him and, you know, um, and we love him. <laughs> and I wish he could be here, you know, for the boys and see them grow up and he would be so proud of how they're turning out and how they're growing into being strong, resilient, Young men. I had a lot of people in the, in, the, in the community tell me, you know, after the fact that they said, you know, we didn't know Jason Ellis. We didn't care, but somebody killed one of our officers, and that's where we draw the line. And I can remember people telling me that. But, you know, we did set up for the funeral, and the public just kept coming out. And it didn't hit me until, obviously, how would it, the day of the funeral, when we left the church and the, the procession was way out 20 miles, I think, from town. And I had never seen that many people at a police funeral. And I've been a cop for 32 years now, 31 years now. And I've been to a lot of police funerals. Beyond the grief, McCubbin had to take care of business. I remember saying we should have more information, meaning a suspect or an arrest within today. This was at eight in the morning, leads piled in that day, the next day, the second day, the third day. And, and of course, when that many leads coming in, you, you follow up on every single one of them. KSP had control of it. It was their investigation. But nothing that made sense. Did you check that, you know, the uh, Bardstown Money Gang, the little BMG group, you know, that we, we, we nixed that quickly. But as the investigation went on, it got more frustrating. In other words, we never got a tip that any of us or KSP or the sheriff's office could go, now that makes sense. You know, everything was just these idiotic <laughs> rumors. Well, you know, you all must have killed him or somebody killed him or so-and-so killed him. And, and we were, you know, challenging in a way of, well, tell us why. I'm the chief in another county in another city now, and I still get phone calls from people. The Kentucky State Police, known as KSP, is investigating Jason Ellis's case. Trooper Scotty Sharp with the Elizabethtown Post responded to the scene in 2013. 
By the time I got there, there was already several, and, and I wasn't, I did not go in the crime scene per se. Uh, my job was at that, that day was to do the uh, crime scene log. Uh, so I was in charge of making sure of who, who was, we knew who was in the scene and who was out of the scene at the time. That's typically a, a normal um, role that a road trooper will play. And so, from my understanding, you have a dedicated team here uh, investigating Nelson County cases, including yes. these three cases. We do have two detectives that, that are here at post, and they're dedicated to these cases, and they work them every day. You know, six years later, I'm sure you've had thousands of tips and leads that you've investigated. Every bit of thousands. Would you say you're any closer you know, I like to think that every day we get up and we're working on all of these cases that we're one day closer, we're one step closer. Nobody, I can say this, there's no one here in Post 4, no detective, no trooper or what, that wants to retire and know that these cases have not been solved. I can speak as a detective because I was one for about five and a half years. You wake up and you think of things in the middle of the night. It doesn't do much for your family life, I will tell you that. It's tough on your family. Um, but you're always thinking of another way, another angle. Um, it's always going through your mind. Inside the Bardstown Police Station, Jason's memory is alive and well. A large black wooden sign is the first thing you see on the wall as you walk in through the double doors. With a blue line painted across the black, it states, The thin blue line. To some, it is just a picture of a line. To others, it is a family crest. Signed, Rick McCubbin. Do you think with Jason's, it was someone who knew he was coming? I mean, lying in wait? So, yeah, that, that was the first, that, you know, they knew his route. So if, if and they were targeting Jason, which, you know, we, we have to believe that they were, they knew that. They knew his route. They knew his route. And his final action was something to, again, help the community to make sure the roadway was safe. I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked a bit. You know, didn't even call off on it, as you know. <laughs> You've heard it. He just thought, eh, two in the morning, I'm not going to bother radio. Just get out, flip on my blue lights and block traffic so no one gets hurt. Clear this branches or branch, whatever you, you know, he thought it was at the time, and get home. But what happened to him on that exit ramp wasn't captured on video like so many are these days. We did not have uh, uh, dash cams or body cams at, at that time. I mean, shortly after that, um, when I was chief, we did go to body cams, but at that point, we, we had nothing. We had nothing. His case was the first to get the town talking. So obviously, you start with the spouse the family, the co-workers. You know, was there another person involved? Was it a jealous husband, jealous girlfriend thing? And I thought, man, you know, I, I'll give you five names <laughs> that I'd go, yeah, I can see that. Not him, not him. He would have never fit that bill. Speculation also started brewing in town as to whether or not drugs may have played a role in his death that night. I remember the first time I talked to you, I'd asked you about the Bartown Money Gang. And you quickly dismissed that. Yeah, you know, they, I mean, they were they were a little a, a group of young men. 
Um, they didn't have the resources, the wherewithal to do something like that. The leader of the pack who said he did it was in jail the night Jason was murdered. I mean, it was just, I think, uh, some young men trying to get some street cred. We're so bad, we killed a cop. No, you didn't. Not, not here. <laughs> not in Bardstown, you didn't, you know. And it would seem like whoever is responsible was very methodical, highly trained, possibly. Would they fit that bill? No. No. They've all had their issues, run-ins with the law. Don't know where any of them are to this day. Hopefully they're doing better in life, but no. Matter of fact, that methodical of, of, of a setup, most police wouldn't have that much because that's not a police tactic that was used. That's a military-type tactic. With him being a canine officer, there's, at least in the people we've spoken to, I'm sh I have to be sure that you've got tips that, well, it has to be connected to drugs in some way. Is that something that was taken seriously or? Oh yeah, and it would, because it makes sense. But being a small department, we only had one canine officer and one canine, and that was his sole purpose, drugs. So that's the first thing you look at. You know, did, did he stumble into something bigger than even perhaps he realized, you know, he had stumbled into? Nothing. Now, I can't sit here today and tell you that if it's solved next year or in 10 years, it, that it wasn't drug-related. But at this point, to what I know, they've not been able to say he arrested somebody who was a higher up in a drug you know, hierarchy and, and they took him out. Wayne Wallace, a crime scene and forensics expert and retired homicide detective in another part of Kentucky, has his own theories about how someone might finally come forward in Jason's case. Who stands to benefit in this murder? And that's how this case probably identified who the people are. My guess is they probably know. And then, as I told you before, something's going to break loose to help solve it. So who stands to benefit from this murder? Because it wasn't an arbitrary murder. It was directed. Wallace has followed Jason's case for years and looked over the medical examiner's report and details we gathered from that night to put his expertise to work. As a homicide investigator, I, I worked about 10 individual capital cases and uh, gained some, uh, some insight uh, and, and had a significant amount of trial um, experience. And you, you've kind of take a deep dive into the mind of the criminal uh, because you have to kind of meet them at their level to get the evidence that you need uh, to, to fully understand and appreciate what happened, but also to put them away. We asked him to analyze the case in a general sense, based only on the information he knows. You want to know more about the personalities involved, you know, are they the kind of people who um, things just like, like water off a duck's back, you know, if they get angry or if there's animosity, do they just shrug their shoulders or do they take it personal? You know, this is something the investigators are going to have to find out. So it's the grudge holder is one who doesn't let go and will come back a year later and, and try to make somebody suffer or get even with them. The circumstances in the Ellis case and, and that degree of planning that went on, that does kind of lend itself to somebody who, um, who won't let things go. Wallace describes two possible types of motivating factors for Jason's murder. One's a strong emotional factor versus a uh, direct instrumental benefit. 
So it's, when we talk about criminal profiling, we're looking at, at the purpose for a homicide. We have to make these judgment calls. And then once we do, then we can look more into their, their behavioral or cognitive. We can make inferences about what, what they may be cognitively and demographically. We can make. Do you find that the ones that have an emotional connection are any harder to solve? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if I die tonight and I have a $2 million life insurance policy on me and my wife is next door telling the next door neighbor, uh, I'd sure be a heck of a lot better off if my husband were dead. You know, it's a pretty direct factor, right? So that's an instrumental benefit. She stands to gain half a million dollars for her husband's dead. Whereas a strong emotional factor can be just, you may have just cut in front of me at the line at the store and I've decided... You know, that ticks me off and I'm going to cut your head off. There are psychopaths that are like that. They don't think twice about it. And that's a true psychopath. They can be high-functioning. Sometimes they're just sociopathic, psychopathic, and, and they just do things without a conscience. Wallace takes us back to the scene, describing various scenarios. What might have happened that night? What we know is that he was uh, killed in an ambush. There's no secret to that. But we break that down a little bit and examine on the circumstances around it. What it can help us to do is to make reasoned inferences, for example, uh, the remoteness of it. Just take where he was killed at, uh, at the off-ramp. If you look at the off-ramp, you see uh, the, the roadway itself is, is kind of super elevated. You know, it's for, for water drainage, right? And it's on a curve. So it was selected. It was specifically selected. Why? It's a great place for an ambush. That indicates a degree of forethought. That, that's pretty significant. So um, it was well-planned. It was lethal from the start. They brought uh, the instruments with them, the shotgun or shotguns with them. And we know that he was shot from two different uh, directions. Now, it, it could very well be that Jason moved and was shot subsequently as he moved, you know, because he was shot on both sides of the head, torso, the arm. It could very well be that he moved his position and was shot from a stationary position. However, the wound patterns and the, uh, the spread of the shotgun shells were measured by the medical examiner and determined to be fired from uh, intermediate and, um, and, and distant ranges, different ranges. Uh, now, that could be that somebody's advancing. Um, you know, if you advance uh, on your target, you're, uh, you're getting closer. So naturally, that would be the case. That would indicate at least some military training. It's probably a lot more likely to be somebody who's familiar with uh, weaponry through hunting and casual um, firearm interaction. But um, if that's the case, my, my guess is, is you got some guys who are familiar with guns through hunting and they lay this ambush out. So my guess is uh, there was more than one person and they were, were in different spots um, and he didn't have a chance, I don't think. Now, if I'm a shooter, what's the advantage for me to use a shotgun over, say, a revolver or something? One of the uh, shot groupings was uh, 12 to 17 inches. So how big do you think a small caliber firearm is quarter to half an inch, right? You have a 17-inch shot grouping that makes your mass much bigger. And so if you're shooting center of mass, it's a lot more forgiving when you're using a shotgun. It's also possible that whoever was doing the shooting didn't just advance, but moved their own position. So 
you know, bearing that in mind, this is just guesswork on our part. You have to ask yourself, was Jason moving? Was one shooter moving? Or was one shooter advancing from different distances over two people in a stationary position? I think if we were to sit here and speculate, which we have the benefit of doing here, I would say the last is far more likely. The question then is who? Who wanted Jason dead? We know, at least anecdotally, that this is a largely uh, male enterprise. It's just statistics bear it out like 94%, you know. So you're thinking about um, looking for men, right? Did they stand to gain something by doing this? Or were they strongly emotionally driven? I tend to believe the former because I don't think they took, they didn't take anything from him. There was no direct instrumental benefit that we saw. So I would say there's a connection between the killers and Jason Ellis in that, insofar as they know when he's coming and going and where he's going to and when he's doing it. Now, I would not hazard a guess as to whether or not they know him personally and have any uh, emotional factor involved. My gut tells me yes because of how violent they were. It's very unlikely they simply knew him and then said, oh, by the way, let's do some arbitrary ambush and kill somebody. Highly unlikely. So that means that they're local. That means they're local boys, probably. And they're probably engaged in, in uh, most likely, what do you think is, is the most likely criminal enterprise going on in a rural county? It's probably drugs. Maybe they silenced who they wanted to silence. Maybe, maybe people weren't being as quiet as we presume they are. Maybe somebody intended to talk. I don't know. You know maybe they silenced those people. And with connections to Jason, Wayne also delves into the type of person who could have done this. Somebody who's homicidal, somebody who's, um, who's got uh, no compunction against shooting at a police officer, ending a life, you know, killing a father and a husband. This is somebody who's capable of awful things. And that really narrows it down. There's an old saying that motorcycle gangs are fond of, that, that two people can keep a secret if one is dead. Uh, and in this case, two people who conspired to ambush a police officer could have a falling out, and one could roll over on the other. You know, this is what we count on in law enforcement. It's an interview strategy, and it's going to happen eventually. Um, you can't keep secrets like that. But even with a substantial reward offered, an investigation by the FBI and the KSP, the case remains a mystery. Chief McCubbin thinks the reason it's a secret is because there's only one person who knows the truth. I can't help but wonder if one person did it, just a lone nut, a lone person who was out to kill that night. What the case hasn't done says a whole lot more than what the case has done. There's a heck of a reward sitting right, literally, across the street from where we are in that bank, hasn't even generated that first tip that makes sense. And I've been doing this long enough to know that you can put out a $1,000 Crime Stopper tip and people will snitch out their mom. A hundred and, I don't know, $180,000 pledged and donated, and it's done nothing. That, to me, tells me more than what, what we do know it's what we don't know, to me, that speaks louder than, than this side. Mm-hmm. 
Sheriff Penaroa isn't sure money will bring anyone forward. The thing is this. You look at all these cases, and what do they have in common? Look how much money's out there. Somebody knows something. I'm sure you could use $250,000. Still there, but nobody wants to say nothing. There's money out there. Somebody knows something. Why is money not an incentive for someone to talk? Maybe they don't want to be the next one. Or the group is so tight that they're not going to speak against each other. Whether it's one individual case, all connected, who knows? But whatever the reason, no one is talking. And investigators on his case have made no public declaration of suspects or persons of interest in six years. There's definitely a connection between the amount of time that passes and the ability to solve a case. The more time goes on, the more difficult it is. And that's the battle that investigators will wrestle until the end of time. Since Jason's death, the community has held numerous memorials. A portion of the Bluegrass Parkway was named in his honor, and his canine partner, Figo, died. Each year, the Bardstown Police Department travels that stretch of highway, retracing Jason's final ride home. I guess we just kind of want to put our place in, in Jason's place that night that, you know, he went home. Took the ride, saw the same sights, the same things, the, passed the same exits, the same buildings. Like most police officers... There's always that one case that sticks with them, haunts them, keeps them up at night. For McCubbin, that's Jason's case. But he holds out hope that one day he will sit across from the killer and ask the one question that's haunted him all of these years. You know, obviously the first question is why. You, 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 had, the, you had the wherewithal to, to do what you did. Come talk to me. Tell me why. Sure, I'm going to hate you. You killed a cop. You killed one of my cops. Tell me why. Not that there's ever a good excuse to murder anybody, cop or not. But tell me why. Tell me why. Uh, Jason's dead, and whoever pulled that trigger is still out here. I would just like a one-on-one -on -one with him, and I just want to know why. I just want to know why. Because I want to be able to tell Amy, Parker, and Hunter. Investigators have never given up on catching Alice's killer, but rumors spin through town now, even six years later. Could that chatter lead to more clues? I think there's one, one piece of evidence out there waiting, and as soon as that's toppled, I think that will be, that'll be the first to be closed. It's frustrating, and it's scary. You know, whoever did it, um, I mean, if they could do something that cold-blooded, would they do it again? I worry about the other officers in that area. My brother is also a, an officer there too, and I mean, I worry about them. I mean, because I don't know why. Um, there's no apparent motive, so that makes it even harder. And it's also hard knowing that whoever did it is out there living. And I feel like I would, we would like to have that closure and you know, have them pay for what they did. You know, his life was taken and it was, it was calculated, it was planned out, and that is hard because he didn't have a chance to even fight back. And the only thing I'm grateful about the details is that I know that he didn't suffer. He didn't have time to think about it. He didn't, 
He didn't even know it was coming. I want to live my life um, in a way that I know he would be proud and to raise our boys um, to be strong men that he would be proud of. We will always honor him and his you know, memory and his legacy. Um, he was an amazing man and that's something that whoever did it can never take away. But Jason Ellis's murder wouldn't be the last in this small town, not even close. It was just the beginning, sparking fear, controversy, and whispers. As another year passes without answers, another tragedy would shake the community all over again. We ask Rick McCubbin if Jason's murder might have emboldened another killer to strike. I'll be honest, I'd never thought of it. I think it's a very interesting approach. I'd never thought of that. Um, And maybe because there just weren't any murders in this community for so long. You know, um, it's a good, I don't know. I'll be honest, you've stumped me on that one. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. If you have any information about Jason's case, call the Kentucky State Police at 270-766-5078. Next time on Bardstown. Whisper when, say his name again, softer than the sunlight through the trees. It was a very violent, very brutal murder, especially against the daughter, Samantha. From experts that we've talked to and that others have talked to have said that, you know, the majority of the Violence was directed toward Samantha. If someone's got information, no matter how small they think it is, all evil matter, you never know. The smallest things sometimes break the biggest dams out there. So come forward, let us know. It never hurts. Bardstown is a Vault Studios production. You can find Vault Studios on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and learn about our other shows at vaultstudios.com. Visit our website, bardstownpodcast.com, for more background and information about the cases we cover in the podcast. I'm Shay McAllister. A special thanks to our team, investigative journalist Jessica Knoll, producers Beth Peake and Spencer Brudig. Adam Ostro and Will Johnson are our executive producers. Audio production by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. This was a homicide. Real investigations. As an investigator, I don't believe in coincidences. The Justice Network, the only 100% true crime broadcast network. A 24-7 lineup of true crime, investigations, and cold case files. These are signs of a serial killer in the making. Why did they do this? Why her? Visit JusticeNetworkTV.com to find us on broadcast, cable, and satellite. The Justice Network.